John chapter 19 is our text for tonight. We're going to find ourselves in verses 16 through 22. In this passage, we are about to look at one of the most conflicting events in all of history. We just sang about the conflicting nature of the scene that we're about to of, that we're about to see. We sang that a cross that was meant to kill is, is actually our victory. And I hope that you recognize that as strange when you sing that, even as like an oxymoron that a cross that was intended to kill is where we find victory because death is defeat. And yet in death, we claim that we find victory. And that is specifically referring to not our death, but the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That in his dying, there is victory that we find over sin and over death. It's a conflicting event. The cross that kills is a victorious scene. Doesn't make sense. And the scene that we're going to see tonight is just that. It's conflicting. It doesn't make sense. So what we're going to see tonight is the crucifixion of the king. The crucifixion of the king. Even that is a conflicting statement. That a king, a ruler, would be crucified. A king would be killed by his people. But not just any king. What we're going to see tonight goes even further than that. The, the creator of the world is going to be killed by his creatures. The very people that he created are going to kill him. In the scene that we behold tonight, God himself dies. That God would die is a conflicting statement. It doesn't make sense. How can God die? How can the creator be killed by his creatures? In this scene, an innocent man who never did anything wrong is killed for the wrongdoing of others. And in all of these conflicting statements, we find victory. We find salvation in torture and death. Those, those, again, those are conflicting statements. That doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem to make sense. And yet, what we're going to see tonight is the crucifixion of this king. We're going to look at a story, a true story, that John, the author of this gospel, tells in a very unique way. John is just going to take a few brief snapshots of a scene that's probably familiar to you. 
in which Jesus of Nazareth is killed for his claim to be the Son of God. John tells this story by just taking a few brief snapshots of what takes place in Jerusalem on this day. He actually doesn't even tell it in a way that that all of the other gospel writers tell this story. He just takes a few brief snapshots. This story is filled with terminology that the original audience immediately would have understood. And so John doesn't actually have the need to explain a lot of what we're going to read in this text. When his readers hear words like crucifixion, so much would have come to their mind. And so what I hope to do tonight is that as we look at just a few of these brief snapshots that that John lays down in John chapter 19, we'll begin to wrap our minds around what exactly took place on this day in which the king is crucified. If you're taking notes tonight, we're going to structure this in the following way. Three snapshots that highlight the ultimate injustice. Three snapshots that highlight the ultimate injustice. And I want us to recognize that that's what's happening here. That this is, sorry, that this is the ultimate injustice. The only one in history who did not deserve death. The only one ever that didn't deserve death dies. And what we need to remember is that he did it for us. He did it for us. And this is the truth that we've been reminiscing on from the beginning of this study that Jesus endured the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. So we're going to see this story tonight, and it's a true story of of the most important day in history. But don't just appreciate the story, personalize what takes place here, and understand that Jesus endures the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin. Personalize what took place on this day. To help us personalize it, John is going to tell this story by giving three snapshots that highlight the ultimate injustice. Let's read the text, and then we'll dive in. John chapter 19, we're going to start in verse 16. So then he, Pilate, handed him, Jesus, over to them, the Romans, and the Jews, to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. 
Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I've, since we have began preaching, looking at this gospel, I've been longing for this scene. The, the center point of all of history in which Jesus is crucified. And, and, it, and it seems like this story has been climaxing to this point, and yet John tells the story of Jesus' crucifixion in just a few verses. It's like we've been building up to this point. The, the animosity against Jesus, the anger towards Jesus has been building. We've been knowing it's leading to his death. But all that we're told about the crucifixion is found in verse, in verse 18. There they crucified him. That's it. This, this scene that we've been looking forward to is summarized in just a few words. And, and the rest of it is just the details that are surrounding this event. How he, he got to the place where he was crucified. Some of the things that were written on his cross. Other than that, it's just he's there and they crucified him. Seems incredibly brief. But what we need to remember is that when those words are written by John, it may seem brief and short and insignificant to us, but those words are powerful and that they carried so much meaning to the original readers. All John has to do is write three brief snapshots. It's just, it's just a shot after a shot after a shot that highlight that this is the ultimate injustice. Remember just a few moments ago, Jesus was under trial. And a man named Pilate, the governor in that area, looked to the people and said, This man is innocent. Pilate looked to the crowd and said, I find no guilt in him. And Pilate was the one who was in charge of determining whether or not Jesus was guilty. He was convinced. He knew that Jesus was not guilty of what they said. That he was innocent and yet... Jesus' destiny was secure because even though Pilate tried to release Jesus, the crowd wouldn't let it happen. And Jesus, though he was innocent and though his judge knew it, was condemned to death on the cross by the man charged to declare him guiltless. And so the only one who never deserved to die is condemned to death. And as that story is revealed, the first snapshot that we see is the king's journey to the cross. The king's journey to the cross. And this outline tonight, all we're going to do is progress through this story. So I want to remind you again to remember that he endures all of this for you. Verse 16 and 17 explain what happens between Pilate condemning Jesus to death and what happens at the place where he is crucified. We're told that Jesus 
is handed over to a certain group of people in verse 16. So he then, Pilate, handed him, Jesus, over to them to be crucified. So Pilate, Jesus is under his authority, he's under his jurisdiction, but Pilate transfers Jesus from no longer being in this room with Pilate to being under the authority of of a certain group of Roman guards, of, of Roman soldiers who would have been tasked with crucifying Jesus. That crucifixion process begins as soon as Pilate hands Jesus over to these guards. So Pilate condemns Jesus to death, hands him to these guards, and what these guards start to do to Jesus begins the crucifixion process. Everyone that was in that culture would have known that. Everyone that was there would have recognized what happens when Pilate hands Jesus over to these guards. It's at this point that Jesus would have been beaten. We talked last week about how there were three levels, three degrees of beatings that were given to those who were condemned as criminals in this time period. The first one is, is kind of just like a scolding, and that's the one Jesus received by Pilate that we saw last week and by, by his guards that we saw last week. The second one was more intense, and the third one was a beating that was meant to, to bring someone to a point close to death. That third beating is what Jesus was subjected to when Jesus, when Jesus was handed over by Pilate to these guards. They would have taken Jesus and they would have, they would have stripped all of his clothes off of him. And they would have taken him to a beam that was planted in the ground and, and they would have tied his hands up to the top of that beam. And, and they would have proceeded to beat Jesus with, with a, a, a whip. It was a leather cord about three or four feet long with, with all sorts of strands coming off of it. And at the end of those strands, there were either balls of lead or sharp pieces of bone and rock tied to the end of those strands. And they proceeded to beat Jesus as the beginning of his crucifixion process. There's nothing Jesus could have done. He simply had to stay there and, and receive what they were giving him. And, and make no mistake that this would have led to massive, massive injuries for Jesus. Skin is being torn off of his back and his body is bruising from the weight of the things with which he's being struck with. His skin's being torn away. He's, he's bleeding profusely, almost immediately. Almost always you would have been able to see exposed muscle and bones. This beating was intended to bring him near death. It's it's important to recognize that Jesus, the God-man, is being beaten by his creatures. And it's not a beating that's just meant to be a scolding. It's meant to bring him to where he almost dies. In fact, there's multiple retellings of, of these kind of events in history, not in regards to Jesus, but other criminals who never survived this beating. They died before they ever got to the cross because this was so intense. The amounts of excruciating pain that's taking place as soon as Jesus is handed over to the guards cannot be described. When this beating was completed, 
We're told in verse 17 that they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. So Jesus is beaten. We're not sure how long this took or how many times. Some would suggest that he was beaten 39 times. There's no historical evidence to indicate that. What we know is that Jesus was incredibly weak. Incredibly weak. Because Jesus is tasked to do what criminals were often tasked to do as they were about to be crucified, and that is that he was to carry his cross to the crucifixion point. Now what's happening in this scene is that the cross is made up of two pieces. There's, there's something called the stripe, which is a beam that's, that's planted in the ground. That beam that's planted in the ground is already at the crucifixion site. Those always stayed on the places where crucifixions happened. They were were posts in the ground that went up in the air and they never moved. There was the cross beam. So so you have the vertical beam and then the cross beam. And, And that part was always removed from the cross after the crucifixion. And it was brought to the criminal to carry back to the point of crucifixion. And that's what happens in this scene. They give Jesus this, this cross beam and they would have tied it to his hands. And he was tasked with carrying it several hundred yards to his crucifixion point. Remember... Jesus isn't just carrying this with normal strength. Jesus not only has undergone an incredible amount of stress in the past 24 hours, not only has he not slept in the past 24 hours, but he's just been beaten within his life. And then they take this beam that would have weighed probably about 100 pounds, and they place it on his back. And they tie his hands to it, and they command him to start walking to the place where he will be killed. And so that's what Jesus does. He takes the cross upon his back and he starts to walk along this road. A road probably called the, the Via Della Rosa. He probably had the two robbers with him and he is walking about halfway through. We're told by some other gospels that he couldn't actually keep the cross up. He was too weak. So what he has to do is some of the guards come to Jesus and they, they try to pick him up. And what they end up doing is tasking another man to carry Jesus' cross. John doesn't actually tell us those details. He's just so <laughs> fixated on Jesus that he never draws attention to Simon. He draws attention solely to Jesus as the one who bore his cross until he could bear it no longer. So Jesus is walking with his cross on his back more than he can bear to carry. I'm going to remind us again what we need to be reminded of throughout this whole story that Jesus endures the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus endures the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. It's the ultimate injustice. John's first snapshot of that injustice is to tell the story of Jesus going to the place where he will die. That brings John to the second snapshot, and that is the crucifixion itself. The second snapshot is the crucifixion of the king. Verse 18, we're told of this crucifixion ever so briefly. 
John writes, there they crucified him. There they crucified him. Now again, that feels incredibly brief, but in the mind of the original readers of this gospel, crucifixion brought so many pictures, so many thoughts to their mind because they were incredibly familiar with what crucifixion is. The reason for that is that crucifixion's whole point was that everyone around would see it and recognize it and fear it. Crucifixion was actually a common practice in this day. That that they would take criminals and they would hang them on a cross. Sometimes they would tie them to the cross. Sometimes they would nail them to the cross. And they would literally put criminals on display. They would display them in incredible agony and pain. So that other people would see what happened to those criminals and be afraid. Crucifixion was was actually a genius move by the Romans because it created a fear in the people that led to obedience to their governing authorities. It was incredibly public. It was designed to be public. It was designed to be excruciating. It was designed to be humiliating so that no one would ever want the fate of those men. We're told that many, many saw Jesus hanging on the cross. Many saw him. And that that was exactly the point. So everyone in this culture and in this context knows what crucifixion is. They're familiar with the pain and with the humiliation. They know exactly what this means. We have nothing like this in our culture. There's nothing like this. What Jesus endured on the cross, again, is the ultimate injustice. Remember, Jesus has just been beaten to the point where he's near death. He's made to carry a heavy weight hundreds of yards. When they arrived at Golgotha, means the the place of the skull when they when they arrived there Jesus would have been thrown to his back they would have laid down that that crossbar they would have thrown Jesus to his back and they would have stretched out his hands over the wood they then would have taken nails they were they were four or five inch nails that were intended to hold someone to the cross for days they would have taken those nails and driven them through his wrists A lot of times in our minds we have that that the nails were driven through Jesus' hands. What we're actually uh, shown scientifically and medically is that a nail through someone's hands actually can't support someone's body weight. It would have ripped out of the hand right away. So what what was common was for them to actually drive the nail right through the wrist, through the two wrist bones that you have. They would have driven the nail right between them and that, that it would have pulled down on this bone in their hands to hold him up on the cross. And I know that you're hearing that and thinking, why, why are we talking about these details? And it's, it's because he did it for you. This is what he endured for you. And when the original readers read this, they see Jesus crucified and, and they understand everything that that means and we don't. 
This is what he endured for you. So nails driven through his hands. And at that point, he would have been lifted up by this beam. His, remember, this, this stake that he was going to be lifted up on is already in the ground. So they would have lifted Jesus up by this beam. And they would have lifted this beam up. And Jesus is being suspended only by his hands. His entire body weight is being pulled down by nails in his hands. And he's lifted up onto this cross. He's lifted up and the one beam is placed upon the other. And Jesus is hanging there and what they would have proceeded to do next is they would have taken his his feet and they would have lined them up on this, this vertical beam and they would have taken the same nail and driven it through both of his feet. It was actually an essential part of the crucifixion that actually made the person on the cross take longer to die. Because what happens on the cross in the crucifixion is not actually death by a loss of blood. What Jesus has endured has already caused an incredible amount of blood loss, but the cross itself wasn't actually that bloody of a scene. The point of the cross is actually that it was a long, slow, and painful death. It was meant to be humiliating and excruciatingly painful over a long period of time. And the way that people eventually died on the cross was not from blood loss, but from from suffocation, from the inability to breathe. So what would happen is they could breathe in, but there was no ability for them to exhale. And so what they had to do was they had to push up on their legs to straighten out their chest so that they could breathe out and then take a breath in and they would hang again and hold their breath until they could push up again. But understand that every time that they're pushing up to breathe is causing excruciating pain in their feet and in their hands as they're pulling their weight up just to catch a breath. That's what's taking place. Jesus was up on the cross for three to six hours dealing with pain and suffering with every breath that he takes. You might note that there's, there's a whole bunch of the, the sayings of Jesus on the cross. There's seven things that Jesus said while he was up on the cross. All of them are brief. They're very short. And it's because saying anything more than a sentence was almost impossible. There wasn't enough air in their lungs. And so there were very brief, very sporadic statements by Jesus. But they're very pointed and they're very important. And we're going to look at those next week. Jesus is on the cross for just a few hours. It's actually insightful that Jesus lasted somewhere between three and six hours. People often lasted days on the cross. And again, that was part of the point, that people would see them suffering for a long time. Jesus only lasted three to six hours. It probably indicates that what Jesus endured before the cross was even more painful and more excruciating than than what most people had to endure. That the beatings that Jesus received mutilated his body so much that he was only able to last a matter of hours on the cross before he died. Our word, excruciating, 
is a word that it's a word that just means incredibly, extremely painful. That word is actually, it's, it's a Latin word. And it's taken, what that word means in Latin is from the cross. The very word excruciating points to what Jesus endured in these moments and in these hours. Don't forget. That he endures all of this to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. We're going to see next week that Jesus breathes his last over just a few. Well, after just a few hours, we're going to see the death of Jesus. But before we're drawn to that scene, we're drawn to a third snapshot. A third snapshot in the ultimate injustice. And that is what Pilate, what Pilate does in just a few verses, we're told that, that Pilate puts the king on display. The third snapshot is the king on display. And it may seem obvious that Jesus is hung up on a cross. Obviously, he's being displayed before many people. But I want our attention to be drawn to what Pilate places as a label on Jesus. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Pilate either writes or or has a sign written about Jesus. and, And what he has written on this sign is Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. It was actually a common occurrence that whenever someone was crucified, that there was a sign placed over their head that said who it was and what their offense was, what they had done wrong. And that's exactly what happens in this scene. But Pilate writes this down, and with this message, he, he introduces almost some, some, some irony or, or some shots at the Jews in the message that he writes. He lists Jesus, the Nazarene. In other words, Jesus, who comes from Nazareth. He's just saying this is Jesus in his hometown. Jesus the Nazarene, and then he writes why Jesus is a criminal. And what he writes is very revealing. Jesus the Nazarene, and his offense is that he is the king of the Jews. That's his crime. That's why he's being crucified. Because he is the king of the Jews. Pilate writes that this is his crime, but the Jews immediately object. Because what Pilate says is offensive to them. 
They're saying Jesus is not our king. They just said a few moments ago, we have no king but Caesar. Kill this man because he claims to be a king. So they come back to Pilate and they say, don't write that he's the king of the Jews. Don't write it as if it's actually true. Write that he said he's the king of the Jews. Write that he thinks he's the king of the Jews. Write that that's the offense because of what he said, but not that it's actually true. Because the last thing that they want is this man who's being humiliated beyond belief. The man who is being crucified, who's being killed, who is bloody and on display to be labeled as their king. Their whole reason for wanting him dead is because they said he's not our king. But they said that in ignorance. Jesus was the king of the Jews. And so it was completely true that this was his crime, though it was no crime at all, that he was being crucified because of who he was. He was being crucified because he was the Messiah, the Son of God, sent to atone for the sins of mankind because he is the king of the Jews. This is an insult by Pilate to the Jews. It's an insult because he's labeled the king of the Jews as a Nazarene, which was certainly insulting. Nazareth was nothing that it wasn't a desirable place. It wasn't where a king would have come from. And so the fact that he's a Nazarene and labeled as their king is a shot to the Jews. But also the fact that he doesn't write that Jesus said or thought, but that he was their king. Pilate's frustrated with these people. He knew Jesus was innocent, and he wanted to set Jesus free, but the crowd wouldn't let him. And so Pilate, for the first time in this scene, begins to gather some courage and begins to gather the ability to to, to take a shot at these people. And so they come back, and they say, change it. And Pilate says, no, I've written what I've written. That's what's going on the cross, and it's actually the sovereign hand of God that places this sign on the cross. Because what we're told is in verse 20 that many of the Jews read this inscription that many who were there, many who passed by saw this man on the cross and saw him labeled as Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. It was read by many. Not only was this in a popular place, it was just outside the city. Remember, that was the whole point of crucifixion, to put it in a place where people would fear it. And so many would have seen it, but not only is it in a popular place, But Pilate writes it in three languages. He writes Jesus as the king of the Jews in Hebrew, in Aramaic, and in Latin. He writes it three times so that anyone that could have possibly passed by would know what this man is being accused of. And so it's a true statement. He truly was the king of the Jews. And all who were there saw him. They saw his label. That king is put on display. He's lifted up with a sign over his head. He's put on display for who he is. Pilate stands his ground, and in this this ironic turn of events, Jesus, who's being humiliated, is labeled for exactly who he is. The king of the Jews, the king on display. So this is where we're going to leave this scene tonight with Jesus hanging on a cross. But I want us 
I'm going to put a verse up on the screen to help us to remember to personalize what's happening in this story. In Isaiah chapter 53, a long time before Jesus was ever crucified, there was a prophecy about what was going to happen this day. Isaiah writes this, He, Jesus, was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The the chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us, our sin, to fall upon Him. That's what took place in this scene. All that Jesus endured, all of the punishment that He received, He was receiving your punishment. He was receiving my punishment. This is our punishment, our iniquity that He is paying for. So, so I want to close tonight by just encouraging us in how to respond to this truth. Okay? I, I want to give us just a few ways of how to respond to the crucifixion. What do we do because of this story that we've read? How do we respond to Jesus' work on the cross? Number one, if you have not repented of the sin that was paid for on the cross, repent. Turn from your sin. Deny yourself and place your faith in Jesus Christ. He endured this to pay the penalty for sin. So if you haven't, if you haven't done that, if Jesus is not your Savior and your Lord, then, then repent and turn. There's much more than that. I want to call us also to remember, remember what took place on this day. Never forget what Jesus endured. Never leave this behind. There's a lot of things in the Christian life that are given to us to remind us. Communion is one of those things that we're supposed to remember Jesus' death through communion. There's there's many ways that you can make sure that you're not forgetting what Jesus did. Remember. Don't forget it. Keep this fresh on your mind daily, what Jesus endured on our behalf. Number three would be revere. Revere. Respect and worship Jesus for what he did. Maintain an attitude of of being awestruck by what took place on the cross. Never forget it. And as you remember it, revere Jesus for what took place that day. And number four, fourth application is is reform. Change. Be changed. Don't live the same way. What took place on the cross changes everything in us, in our lives, how we live. It all changes because of what took place on the cross. We're called so many times in Scripture. One of the ones that comes to mind is Philippians 2, where we're called to be like Jesus, be like Him, change to be like Him, and do what He did. And Paul in Philippians chapter 2 reminds us, remember what He did? He humbled Himself to the point of death. So as we remember the cross, and as we worship Jesus because of what He did on the cross, we're also supposed to be more like Jesus, and change to humble ourselves to be like Him. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, who endured suffering. Change to be like Him. 
who gave his life as a ransom for many. He came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. So we're called to repent, to remember, to revere, to, to reform, to change our lives. So I want to encourage you, we're going to transition to small groups now. To not walk away unchanged by the story. Remember, Jesus endured the cross to pay the penalty for my sins.